Well, it's a pleasure to be here tonight with uh, this group of people, with all of you here just gathered to talk about the church. And uh, really what I want to start off with is just say that uh, you, you'll sense some critique toward the church from me. And that's not coming from a place of bitterness. It's coming from a place of love and concern and a desire and belief that Jesus Christ is going to transform us and the world, not just individually, but as one body through the church. And that this is part of the central teaching of the New Testament. So we're, that's actually where we're going to get to. We'll start, though, with the critique of the church. And so as we do that, I just want to share a little bit of my story um, to kind of give you a sense of where I've come from. I'm a person who is standing here talking to you about the love that I have for the church, the centrality of the church in the New Testament, not primarily because of my experience with the church, and sometimes even in spite of my experience with the church. Many of us have been hurt, and this, when I say this, I'm not talking about the Uniting Church in particular or any particular church. I mean church in my experience as a whole. Right? And I think it's safe to say that in a room this size, people have been ostracized sometimes from the church. People have been in large groups in a church and never felt more alone than when they were in the church. Sometimes we've been disappointed in the church. There's been abuse by the church. And this is all Christian denominations. You know? And that takes its effect on our view of the church and on the society's view of the church. But what I want to argue tonight is that even in spite of some of those broken times in my life, I believe that God's gracious provision through Jesus Christ in the church is the way that he will transform the world. And so that's where we're going to end. Now, a lot of the stuff... Um, I'll be drawing on from tonight is available. This is the library copy I have here, so sorry to my students if you're trying to grab it. Uh, from Worship in the Way of the Cross, I don't have any copies of this tonight. If you're interested in learning more, you could uh, go to any book site in the country and order it, and it's available from InterVarsity Press. And so I, it's, I think Book Depository has it, and Kurong has it, and all those ones. So Worship in the Way of the Cross, happy to talk about that. I'll take Jesus, but not the church. Have you heard this said before, right? Yes. A lot of people are nodding. Perhaps you've said it. I think there's probably been times in my life when I, too, have said, I'll take Jesus but not the church. And it began around 1986 when I was forced to go to Sunday school in the Roman Catholic Church, like every other kid in New England, on the east coast of the United States. This is my sister and her friend Erin. This is me. Um, and I went to a little church called St. Margaret's Parish, which was in Saugus, Massachusetts, right outside of Boston. This is a Roman Catholic parish, and I have some fond memories of, of being drawn to Jesus there. But I also have some crazy memories of Sunday school and trying to escape, and in fact, I was actually kicked out of Sunday school <laughs> for howling like a wolf. <laughs> well, Darlene, who was the Sunday school teacher who hated Hated all humans. <laughs> she hated all humans. I have no idea why she was teaching Sunday school. Was giving us a lesson on something about Jesus. I don't know. I wasn't listening. And, uh, you know, it's just one of those things where if you grow up in a serious church, maybe a, a pious tradition, you, first of all, you don't howl in the general vicinity like a wolf. And as we're howling, I just remember hearing thump, thump. Thump, and it's Father Kamein coming down the stairs into the Sunday school room, and as we're howling, the door swings open, and he's standing there with the big glasses. He seemed a uh, hundred feet tall. He was huge, and he said, "Silence! For this is the house of God." And we stopped dead in our tracks. We didn't repent, but we just were quiet. <laughs> and he knew that he had won the room over. He turned around and walked out, closed the door, slammed the door, and it was total silence for three seconds. <laughs> and then we howled again! And then we got kicked out and spent the rest of the time in the hall. And that's basically how it continued until I got confirmed uh, in high school. Basically because my mom wanted me to, and I would get video games if I did. So that's what happened. Several years went by, and, well, many years went by, and I'm in college at Berklee College of Music in Boston studying music. 
I was a full-time musician. I was basically agnostic, not an atheist, but agnostic at this point, which made all the sense in the world then for my evangelical, born-again friend, former teacher, to come and ask me to lead worship at his church, which was a church plant full of people in love with Jesus. And then the invitation was for me to come lead them in worship as an agnostic. And I said, Matt, why would I ever do that? Why would I get up so early on a Sunday morning? He said, I'll buy you every week. I'll buy you fried chicken, and I'll give you $50 a week. I said, man, he didn't even know. I would have just done it for the fried chicken. But all the stuff you can do with $50, video games and, and more fried chicken and, and yeah, all the great stuff that you do. So I led worship at this church, and this is what I look like back then. This is a... Uh, It is what it is, okay? There's a lot less hair on my head, but that's okay. Uh, so around this time, I'm leading worship in that church, um, thinking these people are nice. These people are serious about their faith. These people are crazy. They're crazy. They're raising their hands. Every time I play How Great Is Our God by Chris Tomlin, which I don't even believe in, they start crying. They're crazy. They're crazy. I could never be crazy like them until in 2002 when I'm in Atlanta, Georgia, playing a gig with my band, open the Purpose Driven Life, and boom, come to faith in Jesus after like five or six years at this church as an agnostic. And it all flooded into my soul, and I started to believe what had been preached, and I felt the grace of the gospel come alive for me. And so I did what anybody would do. I called my this guy, Matt Cruz, at... 10.30 at night, he has two young children, he's asleep. I say, Matt, I've been saved. And he said, that's great, can you call me in the morning? <laughs> and, uh, and I did, and it, it was an amazing uh, time in my life, and maybe you've experienced that, where you've come from kind of just a you know, normal, nominative faith into a real vital relationship with the living God, whatever that looks like for you and the traditions that you come from, it's different for all of us. It's an amazing time that you look back to and, and you never really forget the power of that moment, right, and the effect that that had. Well, flash forward a long time after my doctorate's done in the UK, after my son Liam is born, who is now five, um, after I'm married, all these wonderful things in my life, come back to Boston with no job and get hired. Well, first I get ordained in the Anglican church. And then I say the next step would be to go work in a congregational church, which is what I did. I work in the Park Street Church, which is in the center of Boston. This is the place. And I want you to think about your experience with the church. A lot of us have experienced brokenness in the church and hurt and isolation for different reasons in the church, right? This is the place where after all sorts of different experiences with the church, my study of the love of God and my study of the glory of what God is doing in the church came alive in this place. And it wasn't because of the quality of the worship band. It wasn't because of the quality of the preaching. It was because of the community that I experienced there. It was because of the people who were serving together and some of them were volunteers, and some of them were full-time ministers. I was part-time. But I fell in love with the theology that I had loved for so long because I experienced it. And it was a beautiful thing for me um, to experience both that brokenness first of the church, but then the beauty of being in a church. This was Walter Kim, and I do an interview with Walter in my book. And Walter started off my tenure at the church by having a barbecue for us and just inviting us over. And it felt like family. Have you experienced that with the church? All of us come from families. Some of our families are broken. We've experienced brokenness in life. And, and sometimes we think of family and that hurts. But when you, when you think of the best things that family represent, the warmth, the embrace, the love, the brotherhood, the sisterhood, mothers and fathers and grandparents, that's what it felt like for me to belong to this church. Now, I happened to lead worship with some beautiful, amazing people. But that's not why I love Park Street Church. I loved Park Street Church because it made me believe that the gospel's true. 
It made me believe that what Jesus says about the church, what Paul says about the church, that it's a body, that it's a temple, that it is not about me, but it's about us together. It made me believe that's true. And not even because someone preached it well, or because the entertaining worship was so good, but because I experienced it in people. See, I think God came not to bring us the product of worship, not to entertain us, not so that we can perform for other people. But I think God came to form the church so that we can be a people. And that's what I'm going to get at tonight. And I think one of the reasons that people say, I don't want Jesus, but not the church, is because the church and the people coming to the church have misunderstood the point of the existence of the church. That it's not about a product, it's not about a performance, it's about the formation of a people who will change the world through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what the church exists for. Well, I moved to Phoenix. I become an assistant professor uh, at a large Christian college and am really enjoying myself. And then the brokenness comes again. Two years I'm pastoring at this church. I I won't name the name of the church. Great friends in the church. Powerful times of worship in the church. Good fellowship in the church. Uh, But I experience a schism, a fragmentation of leadership between the lead pastor and myself such that we have a breakdown in leadership. And basically, depending on who you ask, either booted me out of the church or I left. Something in the middle is probably the truth. I hurt him with some of the things I said. He hurt me by the way that he treated me. And there's still a rupture in that relationship. That wounds your life when that happens. If it's never happened to you, it, it, it could, if it's possible, could crush your faith. Could crush your faith. And, and there's people sitting in this room tonight whose faith has been crushed by, by the body that's supposed to nourish faith. But I still believe that the church is the way that God's kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven, in Brisbane as it is in heaven, today and forever, in a beautiful way. But this church, the story's not over yet with this church. I've recently reached out to the pastor and said, look, I've harbored bitterness against you. I've wanted to see you fail. I'm just being honest, right? I'm not a perfect man. I said, I've wanted to see you fail for, for what you've done to me. But I said, something moved me in the spirit, actually, when I was preparing this talk. And I said, and now I want to see you win. I want to see you overcome it. I want to see it. what we could not hold together. I want to see God bring back together. And that is a powerful thing. That only comes to the Holy Spirit. We'll see what he says. I don't know. But uh, pray, pray for that. Because schism in the church tears the fabric of communion. And that is not an incidental thing to my own personal faith in the gospel. That crushes me. That ruins me. But that can also be the catalyst for the thing that changes communities, changes lives, changes people. I believe that that is what the church is. So... What did I do? Me and my buddy John, he was kicked out of a fundamentalist Baptist church. We said, right, let's start another church um, called Christus Victor Anglican Church. And this was one of the most incredible times of healing. So it was another season of healing for me, right? The church met in a Baptist church, which was marvelous, because Baptists baptize adults only, but they ran into an Anglican church who was baptizing babies in there. Talk about ecumenical. Um, and so they were cool with that and they were Southern Baptists they were cool with that and so we met in here actually in this building you can barely see it and the university that I worked at was right here so we planted this church and the people who came into this church you know who they were? the people who felt like they couldn't belong in the mega church in Phoenix you have these large churches 5,000, 10,000, 15,000 person churches dozens of them in Phoenix and Christians People who had been going to these churches, people who had been in leadership in these churches, were leaving those churches and saying, I don't even know if I believe in God anymore. And so we had a church, and our slogan was, a church where those who don't belong cannot belong together. We weren't interested in being part of the fabric of a little subculture. We were interested in counterculture, right? Because that's what the gospel calls us to. Every tribe, every nation, and every tongue coming together in one place, and not only worshiping in the same location, but being woven together as one body. So that if we are ripped apart, it's not just an incidental thing. I can go to that church to get good worship. I like that preacher. When the fabric of communion is torn, we are torn. Our faith 
can be torn. And that is no small thing. Jesus Christ died for a bride, not just for individuals. And that's what we're going to come to talk about. This was a sign that I made for the church. I'm very proud of it. I'm very happy with myself. And, and every week, people found their way, despite this. But it was a very lo-fi place. And I'll tell you what was beautiful about it was that it was a group of like 20 people. And we just hung out together. Dreams, dreams about what God could do among the broken people in Phoenix. And live life together. And it was a beautiful thing. That's the church. That's the church. Big or small, whatever. Here's what I want to argue. The, the church, one of the reasons, and look, there's a host of reasons. But one of the reasons that I think, and we can discuss this in the Q&A, that I think people say, I'll take Jesus but not the church, is because we've thought of the church as a, a place where we deliver religious goods and services to people. Where we bring them the product of Christianity rather than the formation and call to a radical countercultural people. A culture that takes guts. A culture that actually means you have to give stuff up to be a part of it. A place that's worth living in and a people that's worth dying for. That's the attitude that Paul has about the church. Why is it that we're so jazzed about everything in life? We will practically give our lives for sports teams. Right? When we're involved in politics, like I was in America, not very happy in 2016, um, but uh, we'll leave that aside. When you're involved in politics, you get, you're all in. You're out canvassing. We're doing these things. When it comes to the church, eh, there's this sense, at least I have Jesus. I'm not so sure if the church can hold it all together. There's that sense that we have. I think a lot of times that's because we've thought of the church as a product and not as a people, but the church is not a product. Worship is not a product. It's not meant to entertain us. It's meant to transform us. And so I'm going to look at this through three rubrics as we go along and then introduce three biblical principles that I think will counter that. Right? And so worship is a product. We're going to look at, is worship really as a product about performance, ideology, and subculture? Think like a post-Christian. Do you know what I mean by that? We live in a post-Christian time. People sometimes wonder, we do all this great stuff, we open the doors and no one comes to church. It's because they don't care about Jesus. Maybe my parents would have cared, definitely my grandparents would have been sophisticated and everyone who is an upstanding citizen would have gone to church. People don't care and, and are turned off by the church and they're not going to come to us. So how can we bring the kingdom and the church to them? That's what we're going to talk about a bit as we go along. I think the church is not about performance and ideology, and subculture. No, the church is about participation, Jesus, and counterculture. And that is a wild thing. It is totally worth it to be all in for that kind of a thing. Performance. Well, this idea of worship as a product, and I've got the barcode up here, um, it, it strikes me that people are coming to church expecting to receive a certain product from us sometimes. And then we take on, and this is from my observations leading the Center for Worship Arts in Phoenix, which was about 200 students working in mega churches uh, who are all worship leaders. So a lot of the stories that I'll share will be personal from that. Now that was fully immersed in North American Christianity. So I was the leader of the program and Bart Millard from Mercy Me was the director of the program. And so we worked hand in hand together with these students. And what I saw, and this is not to rag on because I'm a contemporary worship guy myself, although I'm ordained in the Anglican Church, so I like a bit of liturgy too. All right, so I'm in the middle somewhere. But what I saw constantly happening in this setting was a focus on worship as a product that would be consumed. Right? Have, have you had that sense before? And we say, no, 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 the band's just up front and the lights and all that. It's not that we're trying to, to worship them. But then you see a picture like this where, what did that say to non-Christians when they come in? It's not just words on the screen. It's these massive versions of us on the screen uh, in addition to on the stage. And we'll say that. We'll say things like, well, we're going to put them on the stage. And we're going to have a production. And we think of worship 
in these ways, and we tried to figure out how can we entertain people. And one of the interesting things that happened was, at, did anyone here go to a Christian college or a Christian university? Yeah. So sometimes you are forced to go to chapel, which is an interesting thing, because you have to think of creative ways to get out of chapel. Because right? if someone forces you to do something, you think, great, how can I break that rule? Right? If it's an arbitrary rule. This chapel was, was not a forced chapel. Anybody could go to this chapel. 7,000 students a week went to chapel at the university that I worked at. 7,000 by their own desire to come. And it was, it was an amazing thing. But I would often, ask, and this is, this is self-disclosure, as the leader of the Center for Worship Arts, I would often go to chapel, stand there for five minutes, and feel more alone than I've ever felt in my entire life. Have you ever felt that? Standing in a room full of people, worshiping God, which in some sense is powerful, and yet you ask, would it even matter if I were here? Would it even matter if I came at all? What am I contributing to this? Maybe I should just leave. And so I did. I would come in, go to, say hello everybody, stand, stand there for a minute, and then go out the back door and go to lunch. Because I've never felt more alone than in an auditorium full of people that you know love Jesus, but that you're not connected with. What do you see when you're walking around waiting for the train, waiting for the bus? You see people in communion? No, you see people who are separate. Everyone's in the same place looking at their phone. You could say they're together, but they're not together. We have a lot of togetherness without a lot of interconnectedness. We have a lot of togetherness in the same place without a lot of community. And I don't think that's enough to get the post-Christian culture to sign up for the Jesus way. To say, come, have our religious product. And then what happens when you're a worship leader? Ten years later, you go, how great is our God? You mean that song from 2002? <laughs> Haven't you heard Bethel? And <laughs> reckless love. Now what's going to happen in 10 years? People are going to go, reckless love. Is that from like 1970 or something? <laughs> we can't play that anymore. And I know this because when I came into this group, I would play a song called uh, Give Us Clean Hands whenever I'd be around the students. And they'd go, oh, I remember hearing that song when I was like three years old. <laughs> People still play that song? And does that not remind you of the world where fashion goes in every five years and then it's out? And so what happens, I think, in the Christian churches, we go, yeah, that's what people need. They need the religious product. They need the hot stuff. They need the good stuff to keep them coming and keep them fresh. But if you listen to Top 40 Radio all the time, and then you went back 10 years later, what you listened to 10 years ago, you're going to be like, huh, you know, no thanks. And that's the, kind of, that's the kind of ethos we've adopted in the church. And I saw this when I went to the Passion Conference. And I'm actually on the videos for the Passion Conference, uh, the, the, one of those cameras that comes like this across the back came back. So like, you'll see Matt Redman singing, Oh no, you never let go through the calm and through. And then you see my bald head. <laughs> <laughs> this is what continues to happen through the whole thing. Um, the, uh, Chris Tallman comes up for a cameo of, It's a good, good father. To you are. And it's like, there it is again. <laughs> nice and shiny. Um, but, uh, but the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This could be you. Right? So the Passion Conference was an amazing thing. 40,000 people packed into a conference arena in Atlanta, Georgia, worshiping Jesus and proclaiming his name and saying, how can we change generations and serve Christ as, as a called. But the way they advertised it was so peculiar to me. It was always, this is about you and your experience. Are you ready for an experience? And sometimes we do that with our youth groups even in the church. Get them all jazzed up and we feed them pizza. Um, <laughs> and then they come into the adult church and they're like, wait a second. And there's, there's this no expectation that they're going to, there's no pizza. You know? <laughs> and um, there's this expectation that, that oh, they're, they're disappointed and maybe they leave church. And, and so I, I wonder if that's part of it as well. But this could be you. It's, it's all about our experience. It's all about partaking of a product. It's all about seeing a performance. 
Because that's what we are raised on in the consumeristic world that we live in. And I think to a large extent, the church has adopted that because we felt that that is how we're going to get people through the door. See, we've been, we've been slaves to pragmatism rather than to the message of Jesus that says, I'm about building a people, not about advertising a product. Right? Because the products grow stale as time goes by. But long obedience in the same direction, gut-wrenching commitment to a community in the midst of adversity and trial, that is the stuff of Christian sanctification. And I believe that can have any kind of music. High church, low church, Smells and bells, Hillsong, whatever you want. But if there's true community and what we're worshiping is Jesus Christ and not worship itself, then that's the kind of thing that's going to change the world. Right? And a- another way that this is problematic for the church, I think, is we've got iTunes and apps and all these different things. And if you've got really good Christian content coming out of the church, there's a sense where you can just, well, you can podcast everything you do. You can, pod, you can vodcast the performance, send videos out of the performance. And so I, I think what folks don't realize is sometimes in our, in our larger universities where there's 200 people in a lecture room, you have the option to come or not. You can sometimes listen to the lecture online. And so we live in a culture where they say, yeah, it might be actually more beneficial for me to listen to a lecture later on my own if what this really is about is me receiving information, me receiving in experience. I could, I could participate in that. And maybe even, I don't even have to join a church at all. I can just subscribe to all the podcasts I like and really get great information. Maybe better information than I'm getting in my local church. You see how that works? And so I subscribe to the podcasts. I get the MP3s. But the impulse behind that is really that you come to church to be informed. You come to church to hear a, a man or a woman preach and to give you information about Jesus, which you then take. Or you come to church to be entertained, to have some experience individually, and then you leave. And I think that that's problematic. And if it seems like I'm being too tough on the worship industry, uh, have a look at this. This is me giving a lecture at the premier worship conference in North America. Which, where did it meet? The First Baptist Church, the Uniting Church, the, some big mega church? No, it met at the Grand Floridian in Walt Disney World. <laughs> right? It met at Disney World because we've we got to get Disney. You're going to come to Disney and talk about worship, and then you know, you'll come to the, to the conference, but really you want to go ride Space Mountain and uh, see Mickey and Minnie and have a good time. And it was really weird giving a talk on cruciform love of Jesus in front of, with this in front of me. Right? It, just, it just struck me as, this is actually part of the problem rather than part of the solution. We have told the church that they come to church to be entertained, and we give them a product that's got an expiration date of maybe a few years, and then we replenish that, and then we wonder, why do we lose generations to the church? It's because sometimes, sometimes, we're so focused on giving the church a product that we haven't formed them into a people. But what I think, young people, I'm 36, so I don't quite qualify, I guess, um, but what younger generations, let's say the millennials, I'm a Gen Xer, so I'm a little bit more pessimistic than the, than the Justin Bieber generation. Um, I, I think what younger generations want, what Gen Xers want, is something that they could say, when push comes to shove, I would die for this. We don't want to be involved in lukewarm churchianity. We do not want status quo comfort. We want something that looks at the brokenness in the world and says, over my dead body, are children going to starve? Over my dead body, are, are, are people going to be alone in their brokenness? But by the power of Christ's resurrection body, do I believe that together we can change things? And we want to do it. We want to see it happen. And it's going to be gutsy and rugged and real. That's what... I think, is going to rock the, the world with the church. Now, what happens, too, is, and we'll get to the biblical stuff in just a minute, but in terms of worship as a product and a performance, from the side of someone who's been a worship leader, and I trained 200 of them in Phoenix, and they were at every church from Hillsong, Gateway, big churches, small churches, you name it. And I saw it time and time again. What do you do? You go on the CCLI chart. Right? Some of you know this, right? And then you get exactly what you'd expect. 
10,000 reasons for the 10,000th time. <laughs> there are some times, and you know when a song has had the tipping point, and I'm not talking about a good tipping point, when it's tipped over the side of the boat and is sinking forever. How great is our God had that like maybe five years ago? How great is our God? Sing with me. And you first, you're like, yeah. And then it was so saturated in the church because... It was one of the top ten that worship leaders would go to, and people expect to hear that. What happened? It totally had the life sucked out of it. And so maybe in 30 years it will, and if you like that song, I'm sorry, but I've played it like 150 times that year, and I, I can never listen to it again. Um, 10,000 10, Reasons is, is almost 75% evacuated of its uh, thematic power uh, in my book. Good, good father. <clears throat> I'll just leave that. Um, <laughs> but what happens is, as a worship leader, you feel obligated to play the tunes that are being fed by the worship machine in Nashville into what people say, this is worship. But do you notice this is all one genre? This is white people, adult, contemporary music. Nothing against that. I like the Goo Goo Dolls. I like Coldplay. I just don't think that they should always be the center of our worship style. If you went to a black church in America and you said, let's just play Good, Good Father, they'd say, yes, why don't you play something that we play? And so what actually happens is we say, this is worship. This is good worship. Or we train our worship leaders, play these three chords, get the cool wavy hair, wear the, definitely wear the skinny jeans. Um, and, and, and you'll be just fine. And what we're actually telling them is play white people music that is on Top 40 radio. There's no gospel or soul in here. Every tribe, nation, and tongue. If we're calling the church to be a gutsy people that are just together and diverse, you know, with Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, every socioeconomic status, every color of skin, every ethnicity, and then we say, but sing like us, only these things. It really kills that goal and dream of Paul, that this would be a place where all of those things coalesce, right? And God forbid you play a hymn, in, in that church, or vice versa. It, it, well, you could play the hymn, but instead of amazing grace, how sweet the sound, it goes like this. <laughs> amazing grace, how sweet the sound. <laughs> and it's got that like kind of like, um, you know, bluesy, uh, indie rock thing. We can do that, man. We can do that with the skinny jeans. Regular Amazing Grace. <laughs> then, of course, if you bring Hillsong into the, into the more traditional churches, like, oh, we just can't have this, you see. Um, and so, <laughs> so the worship wars continue. Here, here's a Hillsong for you. Boom. And, uh, oh, yeah, how about this Wesleyan hymn? No. But uh, I think it's just problematic that there's sort of this homogeneous sort of style. It says, that's modern worship. And it's always got the same kind of, it goes through the same genre, basically. And we're saying, it sounds like this. And I think that the sound of heaven is much broader than Coldplay. I think it's much broader um, than Coldplay. And it reminds a lot of us, and I talk to a lot of folks who lead worship, I used to play cover gigs at the Greenbrier in Brighton. Had a little bit of trouble there before I was a Christian, so I'm not sure if I'd be allowed back in there. But I used to play there, um, and I'd play for three, four hours, and I'd play the same songs every week, which was great, right? No. Because as a musician, you want to create. You want to sing a new song. I go to Tawang Uniting now, and say, one of the songs that we sing is a song somebody wrote or a bunch of people wrote in the congregation. And you go, well, nobody knows now. Yeah, they know the song because they sing it, and they wrote it. And I think that's really cool. I think that sometimes when we play cover gigs for Jesus in the church, we kind of squash the potential of the Spirit by putting him in a box that has been tried and tested and approved and stamped by Nashville. And then we, we become the distributors on the Christian conveyor belt of sameness into a world that needs much more than top 40 adult contemporary music. It needs a people, not a product. Right? We're going to get there. Uh, and so... Uh, uh, not to beat a, a dead horse here. It's a horrible uh, thing. I would never harm animals. Uh, the karaoke chapel is what we call, among some of my friends who are kind of burnt out of the megachurch, we feel like we're leading a karaoke chapel 
where we're like, here, what does everyone expect? It's this, it's this. Give them what they expect, give them what they like. And we found out that actually if we play a song in a minor key, people go, yeah, you know, I really didn't feel the spirit moving today. <laughs> and I actually had a guy say, I played a song in a minor key. He says, why are you so Catholic? I said, I said first of all, there's nothing wrong in, in my mind with the Catholic Church. I'm Anglican. I like a lot of good liturgy, and I like a lot of their music. Uh, and he said, ah, something's not right there. <laughs> and he actually, this gentleman wanted to, and this is not a lie, you can read, I wrote about it in this book. I called him Steve. That's not his real name, but that's what I called him because I can't use his real name. Um, he actually was so angry with me for playing a hymn called Holy God, We Praise Thy Name that he said, that's it, I want to fight you right now. <laughs> this, is, this is like what's going on in the church in Boston, right? So if you ever take a vacation there, just be careful what you say to the worship leader. <laughs> we reconciled. We uh, didn't fight. We took communion together, and then we ate a cheeseburger after. That's, uh, that's kind of a um, re reuniting ceremony in Boston. We feel like sometimes those of us who get burned out in the megachurch, um, now I'm talking about within the church, that when we're forced to create this product, which in any case, post-Christian world is like, we're not into this. We don't listen to Chris Tomlin. This may seem cool to you, it ain't cool to us. <laughs> We're not coming. We think it's a bunch of rubbish. And, and they see, basically, the reception of music, the reception of an information sermon, and then go out into the world, and they say, I'm not giving my life up for that. And you know what I say? Neither am I. Neither am I. And so I get when people say, I'll take Jesus but not the church, when they mean by the church a subculture and not a counterculture. I, I, what I'm saying is, it's not okay with me that the world is the way it is. As, as Jürgen Moltmann said, the, the great theologian, that we, the church, need to not be complacent or complicit in the ways of the world. We need to contradict the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That faith doesn't bring rest, it brings unrest to the person who's been rocked and moved and changed by the gospel. We're not okay with the world as it is. Every aspect, every domain of it, we want to see transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. And we just sometimes feel like wind-up worship monkeys at the karaoke chapel when we're leading people to say, what really matters is a product, when we should be saying what really matters is to give your life radically to a people, to dig in your heels in this time and place, and to, even in the midst of, and sometimes in spite of the brokenness of the church, run toward that brokenness. Don't give up on that brokenness. Transform and reimagine what is broken so that it might be redemptive. That really gets me excited. Now the Catholics and the liturgical folks don't get off the hook either. Because in those churches you have a lot of folks who come and are very particular about they want to receive their worship product in this fashion. So it's not just the Hillsongers and the, the Evangelicals. It's, and it's sometimes the people who like incense, which I really dig, by the way. I think that every room in this building should have incense in it. But I've been told that's not going to happen. That's okay. I still love everybody. And this reminds me of... <laughs> this reminds me of that Mr. Bean episode where he's in... This is like one of the best ones, the classic Mr. Bean. And I totally resonated with him, having grown up in a church where I felt totally detached from everything that was going on. And you end up... <laughs> if you come into one of those churches... And you don't know what's going on, and you think, here's, it's going to roll up like this, and then we all leave. You, you end up looking like that. And you probably meet someone that's looking like this. Now this guy over here, or this woman over here, is going to tell you, if you move those flowers, I've been putting them there for the same way for 47 years. If you move the flowers, get out of my sanctuary. I've been told stuff like that before in churches. Right? And so it's, this is weird thing we deal with as Christians. We also have ideology. We got, we got worship as a product, and it's a product that the post-Christian world doesn't want. Why? Because it's not indicative of the breadth of human experience. We can do better. God calls us to do better. That doesn't mean we have to feel bad about what we're doing, but it means that God's calling us to something more, and together we can do that. Product is also about ideology and subculture. I'll breeze through these because I'm very eager to talk about the gospel and then partake in pizza with you all. <laughs> the tough guy Jesus culture. I came from this culture in North America when I first got saved. This is an actual book. I don't know if it's a good book. It's a very interesting cover. Learn to live. Toughen up. Jesus is a tough guy. 
But that's how we would say it in Boston. He's a tough guy. All right? That's how it is. I love that they've got this guy over here. And then the football player. It's absolutely bonkers to me. I have no idea what's going on here. Um, but I grew up in a church culture where it was you know, reacting to what was perceived to be kind of a wimpiness in the church. And Jesus became this sort of macho man, Rambo, vengeance Christ. And he was, he wasn't like the Jesus you usually see. He was, you know, coming in like this. Whoa, I am the Lord. And every time there was a men's event, it would be like, men, let me tell you what we're going to do. We're going to get some junk food. And we're going to go up to the retreat center. And then we're going to get more junk food. We're going to shoot some guns. We're going to shoot bows and arrows. We're going to hike, because that's what men do. Now, darling, you guys stay home, ladies, and, and sew things and knit things. That's, that's what the church culture was like. And my wife was like, forget this place. And I was offended by that, because I'm like, first of all, true manhood isn't about shooting a weapon. Right? Or scaling a mountain. Or, or eating, it would always be like, I eat beef. And I'd be like, dude, I really like spinach and I don't feel any less like <laughs> I actually feel quite nutritionally satisfied. <laughs> and I'm totally comfortable with my manhood. Right? Um, and so it doesn't matter if you eat steak if you're a man or not. But there was this, this oh, you eat steak, you smoke cigars, you're a true man. It's like, okay. Um, and, and femininity as well was, was kind of typecast as sort of dainty sewing clubs. and nothing, nothing wrong with that, but look, my wife didn't like that, and neither did I. And so one of the ways, this was from Greg Boydsight quoting Mark Driscoll, just to give me a sense of this, that this ideology kind of sometimes takes the place of Jesus. In Revelation, Jesus is a pride partner with a tattoo down his leg. Taking some liberty here. He has a sword in his hand and the commitment to make someone bleed. That is a guy I can worship. I cannot worship the hippie diaper halo Christ because I cannot worship a guy I can beat up. <laughs> it's like, there's so many things wrong with that, right? But in the, in the Christian subculture sometimes, in an effort to appeal to young men, to say, this is what it means to be a man. It's this macho man Rambo vengeance Christ that takes the place of just Jesus. The real Jesus. The compelling Jesus. The Jesus who is not like the Ones who are powerful in Rome who crucify those who they disagree with. But the Jesus who himself is crucified for the sake of the world. The self-sacrificial Jesus. That's not a wimpy Jesus. That's the Savior Jesus. Right? And so, oftentimes, we wonder, why are people not coming to church when, maybe this isn't your experience in the church, but there's some of that false manhood going on. And then the other side of it is what I call the liberal guru hippie yoga Christ. <laughs> who walks around Palestine in a bathrobe with small animals. <laughs> and who's clearly Anglo-Saxon, right? Um, and, and the thing about this Jesus is, this, it's actually more endearing to me than, than the hippo, than the macho man, Rand, uh, Randy Savage, that's the actual wrestler, <laughs> the macho man vengeance Christ. Because at least there's some, some truth. The Beatitudes are in this Jesus. The, the, the kind of teachings of the Sermon on the Mount are in this Jesus. But so much is evacuated from this, from the biblical story, because it's either deemed too difficult, then you talk about judgment or any of those things, or anything that Jesus would impose on us as like an ethic, is that oh, we don't need that Jesus. Uh, that's not a Jesus I would give my life for. That's not, it, it, I don't even go to that church and say, I'll take Jesus, but not the church. I walk out of that kind of church and say, I'll take nothing, thank you very much. Right? Because it's a Jesus who requires nothing of me. Therefore, I don't have anything to give him if he requires nothing of me. But the real Jesus requires everything of you. Do you know this Jesus? Right? This Jesus requires everything of you. When you were baptized into Christ, you're dead. That was the end of you apart from us. But now there is only a you who is defined by the fact that you belong to the body of Christ. That's where we're going with this. But ideology replaces Jesus. And then sometimes, sadly, devastatingly. And I came from Boston, so I know people who were personally abused by clergy members. There's a subculture of abuse sometimes in the church. that had gone on for years in all different denominations. 
And I remember the guy, one of the guys who was one of the main reporters for the Boston Globe was saying, I am so torn because I feel so drawn to go worship Jesus, but I can never go back in the church because of what's happened and what I've seen at the hands of those who were the servants, so-called servants of Christ. Um, and so, just to get serious for a minute, there's a subculture that's happened of abuse in the church that's play, replaced commitment to a community and commitment to Jesus as the Lord and Savior of our lives. And uh, that's something that I think in, in the Uniting Church, we're, we're really strict about the code of ethics, and I, I was happy to be able to participate in that and to see the seriousness with which we take that. The Anglican church that I was a part of in, in North America, the same thing. But there's a long way to go to heal the brokenness caused by that. So um, that's a part of it. And there's also what I call the subculture of sameness, not the subculture of the matrix. If you've never seen the matrix, I almost am going to tell you just leave and go watch the matrix. But the matrix, you have all these robots who are the same. And, and have you ever thought this, that the church operates according to what theologians call homogeneous unit principle. That is to say that it is actually in church planting manuals to say the way to make a church grow is to plant it for a homogeneous unit, a unit of sameness. You plant it to young, 30-something professionals. That's your demographic. But where are all the grandparents in that church? Where are all the really young people in that church? Where are the moms and dads in that church? Where are the, the, the broken people in that church? Right? Or, or you plan a church based on ethnicity. So this is a, a church that's for white suburban soccer mom types. And that is how people plant churches sometimes. That's called the homogeneous unit principle. I think that when Jesus died on the cross, that was one of the things that was nailed to it. Was the idea that we have to fit into a subculture of sameness in order to belong to Jesus. Rather than a counterculture of the cross. Which says there's neither slave nor free, male nor female... Christ is all and in all, right? And so <coughs> folks see the church, they say, uh-huh, I see, this is a, a church with only black people in it. Good, this is a, a white, you know, suburban, comfortable church. Fine, not fine, not fine. <coughs> we need to pursue ways to work on a multi-generational, intergenerational, multicultural model for the church. Because a lot of us from outside the church, and I, I say this because I was at a church when I was not a Christian. We, we say to ourselves, why would I want to be something that, that squelches who I am and puts me into a subculture of sameness? Right? So we've got all these problems, and when you're inside the bubble, it's hard to see it because the inside the bubble is warm and cozy. And you're wondering why people aren't bursting the bubble to come in. It's because they don't want in. They don't want to join that little club. They want something real. They want something that says... This means your life. Would you die for this? Would you give it all up for this? For each other? And you say, yeah, there's lots of people in the church I like. No, I'm talking about for your enemy. For the person that annoys you in the church. That is who Jesus calls us to sit alongside with. And not simply to stand next to in the same place, but to become one body with. Such that if we get ripped apart from them, we lose everything. We lose it. It's vulnerability to the highest extent that I think is the thing that captivates me most about the church. I think we've been blind to a lot of this. And I think that the church, yikes, has bought into the, this idea that we're a product culture. And I'll start wrapping it up soon. Um, but I want to get into the Bible. And here's how we're going to do that. You get to ask these questions when you come to the text. It's not what I can get out of the church, but it's what I can put into it. I, as a 36-year-old man, want to be part of something that tells me this, you better count the cost because this is serious. You join the military, you don't go, ah. you're either all in and you might die. Right? But the church, it's like, ah. what, what kind of songs are you playing these days? You going to do Reckless Love this week? Count me in. Right? There's, we're not passive recipients of a religious product as the church. We are rather active participants as God's people. That's everybody from the two-year-old to the 82-year-old, right? That we're all integrated, that there's moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas and that there's kids and that everyone belongs. And it's not because they're the same, but it's because they're one in the spirit and one as the body of Christ. Not individuals who attend church, but integrated co-communicants who are the church, 
I think we've got lots of people in the megachurches even. And they are attendees of a church event. But they miss the fact that there are 10,000 people standing next to each other who don't even know who each other are. And it makes no difference. Even if one of them died, you would never know. And how do we combat that as the church? I think we need to be a people. And I'll give you some verses and some principles. Then we'll eat some pizza together and have some questions if you want to do that. I think we need to be a people who participate in Jesus as a counterculture. Who don't settle for a subculture. Who don't settle for ideologies. Instead we have Jesus. And who don't settle for a product. But who settle for participation in a people. You know, whenever the Bible calls us to be the church, it uses a corporate metaphor that talks about a plurality of people coming into a singular thing. And this is a hugely radical thing to bring to our culture. The body of Christ, which I'm sure you'll be familiar with most of these things. Right? It's a, it's a singular body, but it consists of many. The temple of the Holy Spirit. And this one's also in 1 Peter where it says, you're individual bricks in, this, in the temple of God. But I think a lot of our churches function as individual bricks just laying there, not integrated. We're happy to just be a brick. That's not the metaphor that Paul uses. The household of God, that the church is meant to be a family. And if something happens to you, it happens to me. And if something happens to your family, I don't say, too bad for that guy. I say, what happens to you happens to me because we are literally one in Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter if you're more on the progressive side or on the liberal side. It doesn't even matter if you agree with me or you like me or I like you or whatever. Just in virtue of the fact that we belong to each other and that the world will be changed through that kind of growth. As many as you, as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's and you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise that God made in Genesis 12, that the world would be blessed through the seed of Abraham. Right? We were baptized into Christ and we put on Christ. This is about the furthest thing from the homogeneous unit principle that I've ever read in my life. This is the countercultural, multicultural, intergenerational Jesus movement that we need to be insisting is the best thing that we can offer people. It's the only hope. It's the only truth. It is the way. It is worth everything. In one spirit, we were baptized into one body. Now, I want us to think about this. In one spirit, we're baptized into one body. It's not just that we're baptized into one body, but Paul says we're buried with Christ in our baptism, and we're raised in faith. In other words, baptism so often right, is this situation where we say, I've made a decision for Jesus. I'm going to be baptized to make a public declaration of my faith. It's not a bad thing. But it isn't about you. It's about what God has done in your heart. And that's why some, some of the traditions of church will baptize babies and young children in uniting, at least in the Anglican church from, from, in which I was ordained, we do that as well, as well as adult converts. And one of the amazing things is that what died in baptism is the individual you. The you that existed as a solo endeavor, as an individual defined by who you're separated from, I'm me, not you. That's what died in baptism. What was born in baptism is true personhood. Personhood is defined by your relationship to other people. You're a person in relation to other people. You're a son to a father. You're a friend to another person. Who you are is defined by your relationship with others when you're a person. That's what baptism is about. It's an invitation to personhood in the people of God. Individuality is what happens before you become a Christian. I'm an individual, and I'm defining myself by who I am not connected to. I'm not you. I'm not connected to you. That died in baptism so that together we can live in Christ. Check this out really quick. You have died, and your, in Greek this is plural, life is singular. Your, speaking to a group, your singular life is hidden with Christ in God. Oftentimes we read this verse in our individualistic culture and we say, oh yeah, this is about me and Jesus. And so I don't really need the church. This is about me and Jesus. 
But actually, the life that animates you is the very life of God, the divine life of the one who created the universe, who rose Jesus from the dead. And it's not my life and his life and your life and her life. It's your, plural, life singular. That one divine life is the same life that animates us all. That means the end is not death for us, but the end is eternal life with Jesus Christ. That binds us together as one, I believe. And then when you start to read things like this in Colossians from Paul, that the body of Christ is nourished. The body of Christ is knit together through joints and ligaments. And because of that, it grows with a growth that comes from God. We start to say, saying Jesus, I I would like to have Jesus, but without the church, can make no sense if it means I'm going to rip the joints and ligaments out of the body and let them exist in a pile of dismemberment over on the side there. And that's somehow spiritual health. Right? That is the, the, the seriousness with which Paul takes of the body. And why? Because it's only when we're in communion with each other that we're in a right relationship with God. And it's only when we're in that relationship with God that we grow spiritually. We have a lot of Christians who attend church, but they're not in communion with the people that they stand right next to. They don't even know who they are. And what we need to do as a church is say, it's not about a product, it's about the formation and transformation of a people. And that is what the church is called to be. And it's why we can never say, I'll have Jesus without the church, because Christ didn't come to be a brand, to promote a brand. He came to make a covenant bride. That is why we can never say we want Jesus without the church, despite all the brokenness in the church. One more. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you, plural, have taken off the old man, singular, with its practices, and you've put on the singular new man. Again, you have you plural in the Greek, meaning y'all, if you were from Texas. Y'all, y'all, have taken off this, and a lot of times, again, you see when the translations get this as the old self. They totally mistranslate anthropos. That's the Greek word. If you think anthropos in Greek means anthropology, from which we get the word anthropology. Who was the old man who was associated with sin? in the Old Testament. It was Adam. And who is the new man? Who's the new Adam? Jesus Christ. So what we've taken off is this way of being that is anti-God, that is selfish, that is individualistic, the kind of person that would show up to church and stand next to other people like that and think that's what it means to be the church. That's what we've taken off. And we've all put on the one new man, which is Christ. And so Paul doesn't conceive of us as individual Jesus wearers. He says that when you've been baptized, you've been baptized into the one body of Christ. You belong to each other. You're being knit together like joints and ligaments. And if you don't, if you let that break, it's, it's gone. It's gone. Your life with God is gone. All right. Um, I want to just get to a few things and then... Um, take some questions, and then eat some pizza. (laughs) So, a few things that I have to say, how can we counteract, that's a little bit up there, how can we counteract this in the church? And I think there's different ways. These are just a few that I've come up with just to end with. The stage, eliminate words of production from the way you talk about your church. If Jesus didn't die for product, but died for people, don't be talking about on the stage and on the platform and all these things. There isn't a stage, there isn't an audience, there's a people. We've got to figure out how to bring that back together. It's not a production, it's a worship experience together. Production is something we do for a performance, right? I think we need to eliminate the cult of personality that often comes in churches. If you're having conversations about how do we replace this or that one leader in the church, that person has got too much influence in the church. And what we need to be doing is building up people so that they serve each other in the church. And that without each other, we feel a detriment to Jesus because we are at a detriment spiritually and communally. The next one would be, uh, we have to eliminate an unhealthy dependence on clergy and so-called religious professionals. You exist as an ordained person, not for yourself. Your ordination exists to serve other people. 
I love in the Anglican tradition, when you're ordained, first you're ordained a deacon, and when you're then ordained a priest, the bishop will say, but you'll always be a deacon. And you know what the word deacon means? It means to serve. You're the lead servant among other people who you're discipling to serve. It's a beautiful thing. And we have to get away from the kind of solo pastor model where, where we're so pastor-centric that the congregation is you know, receiving his ministry or her ministry as a product. It's not a product. It's building up of a people. We need to relocate the worship team. Now, I've noticed that Tawang, which I think is really cool, they're kind of to the side a little bit. And, you know, you might be inclined to say, well, move them into the center um, and put them up on a platform. <laughs> and, and we need, why is there no smoke machine? <laughs> um, uh, that, that sort of, you know, that sort of stuff. So why is there no smoke machine? And we need to relocate the worship team. It's, it's becoming a problem when the worship team, you go like, do I have a good seat to see the worship team? That's weird. <laughs> and, and the first thing that post-Christian people realize is, oh, we're worshiping a band. Right? We're, oh, there they are again. Wow! And I'm telling you, at these conferences, like the Passion Conference and stuff, it's always the beautiful people who are on stage. Right? Interesting. They're all also models. You know, male and female models that are playing in, in the worship bands at these big events. It's because they're a product a lot of, a lot of times that we buy and sell and consume, when what we really need is a rugged, robust, rich people that's worth giving our lives for. Here's a good one. People will love this in your congregation. Demand and expect full congregational participation in the leadership of the gathering. Well, that sounds very Rambo Christ of me to say. Reading. I'm talking about praying together. I'm talking about singing. I'm talking about teaching. And in the early church, often... I'm, I must confess that I, I much prefer dialogue than monologue. Um, in the early church, um, actually it was a long time before monologue became the central form of Christian communication, meaning one-way conversation. In the earliest churches, which met in houses, uh, what you had was some leaders in the community leading people through the, the Old Testament, because the New Testament had not yet been written. Paul's writing those letters as he needs to. And they're coming together, someone's leading them in a, in a conversation about how Jesus is fulfilling everything in the Old Testament. And it's a beautiful thing, because then people can actually say, hey, you know, that's interesting. Someone who's not the pastor can say, have you noticed this? And guess what happens? The person who has no doctoral degree, who has no training maybe, leads the, the leader closer to Jesus. That happened so many times at Christus Victor when we planted that church. That there were people that just blessed my life. If I had been the only one talking, I would have missed it. Are there ways that we can have holy conversation rather than holy domination over a, uh, over a congregation? And I think that we need to think really hard about what that means in our context. Uh, inviting people, whether it's small groups in the bigger churches, or whether it's creative different ways to do uh, you know, church, I think that's really important to think about. Require church membership. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, this is how it sounds legalistic. It's not. Look, if you join the military, you don't go, ah, maybe I'll just sign up but leave. <laughs> you know, if you, if you get a new job and you sign a contract, if you buy a house, you don't go, after all, I don't think I'll pay my mortgage. When it comes to the church, you just can kind of willy-nilly say, ah, Forget it. <laughs> you know, and, and I think the problem is when you say to a post-Christian culture, like, yeah, it doesn't matter if you show up. It's totally fine. Listen to the sermons, yada, yada, yada. You know, if you say that to me, I go, this is not something I would give my life for because it's not requiring anything of me. <laughs> Giving, committed service, community life. I think these are things. Now, you might have someone that visits the church and you don't say, are you serving? But you're calling them to something. You say, look, I'm calling you to walk the way of the cross with me in this life. And it's more than just showing up to get a religious product. So if you want to be a member at this church, that is what Jesus requires. And I'm going to lead you. And that's not me domineering. And that's not me being a macho man. That's me leading you in the way of the cross to bring you deeper into the connection of the people of God. Not just handing you a tidy religious product that you can consume. In any case, we'll need to be fixed. Look, the church will never be lovable enough to win our affections. It never will be, but that's the point. 
that the ones we love are the ones whose burdens we bear. And if there weren't a burden to bear, then it wouldn't be a burden. It wouldn't be difficult. But Jesus calls us to walk the way of the cross. He calls us to do that together. And one of the ways to, I think, combat this, I'll take Jesus but, but not the church, mentality in ourselves and to each other is to cause us to greater commitment, to greater vision, to greater understanding of not only what the church is, but what God wants to make the church become through us. And not only what God wants to make the church become, but who we will be to the world for the sake of the world. So a lot of people think, well, there's the world and there's the church. And they're the two polar, polar opposites that can never be brought together. But actually what Paul says is that we who have been reconciled, 2 Corinthians 5, 14-21, we who have been reconciled have now become the instruments of reconciliation in the world. You're not called to just come together as a church and be transformed. You're called to go out and transform the world through the transforming love of Jesus Christ. And that is a powerful thing. And so what I want to call us to tonight is that vision of the church. A church that says, if you say you'll have Jesus without the church, it's with warrant. It's because there's brokenness in the church. But that in spite of that, and even because of that, run towards the brokenness. And if you're, you're a person that feels called to ministry, and maybe you want to go into a period of discernment, and you're thinking, surely God couldn't use me, do it. You all belong to each other. And there's different denominations in here, and we all are part of the mystical body. And this is an age when that kind of commitment will show itself to be what it really is, empowered by God himself. And so I'll just kind of pray as we end, just for us, because I'm glad to be in the, in the midst of you tonight thinking about these things. But what I hope we, we leave with um, is a deeper understanding of the call that God has put on us to be the body of Christ. In the midst of the brokenness, in spite of the brokenness, let me pray for us as we do that. Lord God, you rescued us from darkness and brought us into light. And we are part of the Jesus movement in our various denominations and churches and styles of church. And we're trying to be faithful to you. And we're looking at a world that is increasingly becoming separate from who you are. But they're intrigued by you, Jesus. And so we pray that we would move ideology out of the way so that Jesus could have back his seat on the throne. We pray that we would move performance and products and consumerism out of the way so that the person of Jesus and the people that he's formed would be transformed and renewed and renew the face of the earth so that justice would flow and that every man, woman, and child from every tribe, nation, and tongue would come to know that God is for them, not against them, and that in the gospel of Jesus Christ there is freedom now and there is freedom forever, and that that is a church that's worth living in and a Lord that's worth dying for. Give us the heart and guts and grace of Jesus Christ so that we might transform this world by your power. In his name we pray. Amen.